You're listening to Plenary Session. In today's episode, you're in for a real treat. I'm going to talk about three things. First, I'm going to talk about Dr. Sid Mukherjee's ongoing phase one, two study combining a ketogenic diet with PI3K kinase inhibition. This is a phase one, two study that's gained a lot of popularity because he wrote about it in the New York Times Magazine. And so many, many people have asked me about it. And in fact, I was going to let it go, but then one too many people asked me about it and I realized it must be commented upon. The next thing I'm gonna talk about are two failed randomized controlled trials, Comet 1 and Comet 2, which were randomized trials of cabozantinib tested against the straw man comparator of prednisone and prednisone plus mitoxantrone. And yet even against that competitor, cabozantinib failed in prostate cancer. Those are negative studies. And yet somehow a reanalysis reports that it's positive. How is it positive? Well, the p-value is less than 0.05. And if it's positive, it's worth another look, the authors conclude. I'm going to argue that this reanalysis is an example of terrible, terrible science. It is really bad, it's problematic to the field, and it's emblematic of so many things wrong with our profession. And finally, I'm going to talk to Dr. Jane Zhu. She's an expert in the Affordable Care Act, and we are lucky to have her here. She's an assistant professor of medicine at the Oregon Health and Science University, and she's gonna talk about instabilities in the marketplace, and you won't wanna miss that, particularly if you're a policy wonk. So, stay tuned. But first, a plug. If you like this episode and you like this podcast, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. Write a review if you have the time. If you want to follow us on Twitter, we're at plenary underscore session. And if you really want to support this podcast, now there's a new option. You can go to patreon.com and you can back us, patreon.com forward slash plenary session. You can back us at any level that uh, you choose, and supporters will get access to links and articles that we discuss on this podcast, as well as slides for presentations. So go to Patreon. We could use your support. First up, Dr. Sid Mukherjee. Dr. Mukherjee is a very famous oncologist who gained his fame um, by writing a Pulitzer Prize winning book entitled The Emperor of All Maladies. And full disclosure, I enjoyed the book. I enjoyed reading it. And I thought it had many, many interesting things about the history of oncology. The only thing I would fault the book for is it has a bit of hero worship, uh, which is something that I don't like about medical histories. But, you know, he can't be faulted for that because that's a problem of the field. I think a nice book that complements the book Emperor of Maladies is The Death of Cancer by Vincent DeVita. And, you know, again, there's a little problem there because Dr. DeVita apparently has a very limited understanding of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration and its role in protecting patients, and so I fought that book there for that reason. But again, overall, both books I really enjoyed. I've also read Dr. Sid Mukherjee's other books, The Gene, which I like to compare against The Eighth Day of Creation, which is another book about microbiology history, which I think is a superb book, um, and The Laws of Medicine. And I think he's a very gifted writer. There's no doubt about that. He's a tremendously talented writer and writes lyrical, uh, poetic sentences. Um, he also, by virtue of having written these books, has a very, very large platform. He writes for the New York Times Magazine. And recently he wrote an article entitled, It's Time to Study Whether Eating Particular Diets Can Help Heal Us. The title is bad because it implies that we've never studied whether diets can help heal the body in any condition, which is in fact untrue because there are many randomized controlled trials of diets particularly in the cardiovascular field, and listeners will know that. But, be that as it may, this is an article about 
something that Dr. Mukherjee is working on, which is combining a PI3K kinase inhibitor with a ketogenic diet, which is something that he is working on in an ongoing phase one, two study, which combines those two. And it's based on bioplausibility that he and Dr. Cantley generated in a Nature paper. Okay. Um, and many people have brought this up to me and asked, you know, do you think I should eat a ketogenic diet or should I recommend ketogenic diets? What's the role of ketogenic diet? Um, Dr. Mukherjee didn't help things by, by tweeting, I'm reading the tweet verbatim, quote, and folks, please do not switch to keto diets alone without the PI3 kinase inhibitor or without medical supervision or evidence. In our paper, leukemia accelerates with a keto diet alone. Please follow the data from our study, which I think is a bit of a mixed message because in that he says, or without medical supervision or evidence, and they don't have that latter thing. So I would not recommend that anyone do this just yet because there's no evidence, and I think that's something very important. But the reason I'm bringing this up is not about this phase one, two trial, which I have no problems with. I have no fundamental problems with their paper. I have no fundamental problems with the fact that they're running this uncontrolled phase one, two trial, combining the ketogenic diet with a PI3 kinase inhibitor. That's not my problem. My problem is that this is what's being amplified, and that's what I want to talk about. This is a common thread I've observed in the last few years. Dr. Mukherjee, who gained a platform by being a very eloquent spokesperson for the history of oncology. Dr. Gawande, who gained a platform by being a very eloquent writer about the experiences of a resident in surgery. These are how they gained a platform. Once having gained the platform, they have used the platform to highlight something that they are interested in. In this case, Dr. Mukherjee's highlighting the PI3 kinase inhibitor and a ketogenic diet. He happens to be participating in a phase one, two study on the topic. But there are many phase one, two studies that have similar levels of bioplausibility. Those aren't all being included in the New York Times Magazine because the people working on those projects have not written a Pulitzer Prize winning nonfiction book and they don't have a column in the New York Times Magazine. Dr. Gawande took his fame and used it to publicize the checklist. And the checklist had gotten a little bit of news coverage, of course, but I think anyone would be lying if they said it didn't get a big boost by having him as a proponent. He likes checklists. He believes in checklists. He did some research on checklists. It led to a New England Journal paper. So both of these cases have a similarity. I think a very talented writer, and no one will ever take that away from them. They're both very talented writers, and I enjoy reading their work. They have leveraged that podium to discuss pet projects that interest them. And that is the problem. That's a big problem because that's not commensurate with the interest that one ought to place on those projects, right? So if some other researcher were doing a phase one, two study on combining some drug with some diet, you would never have read about it. It would never be amplified by this. Similarly, I'd even argue that their Nature paper by Cantley and Sid Mukherjee entitled Suppression of Insulin Feedback Enhances the Efficacy of PI3 Kinase Inhibitors has an altmetric score of 1,209. It wouldn't have that altmetric score if the author hadn't have happened to write a nonfiction book that people like. Okay? These are disconnected things. And that is, I think, the misamplification of science that doesn't really warrant that amplification. Let's talk a little bit about diet and cancer. If I were to think very broadly about diet and cancer, and I asked myself, 
you know, what would be the most informative study? And, you know, I, I would like to kind of formalize this through some sort of value of information study, but uh, you put that aside for a second. The first thing that comes to my mind is I would imagine, you know, some simple randomized trials to sort of sort out some longstanding questions we have in the field. For instance, um, if I had a large thousand person randomized trial forearm study, let's say one arm of the study is you advise, and let's say we enroll patients with um, uh, unresectable, advanced metastatic, incurable solid tumors, because unfortunately that accounts for the bulk of probably cancer patients who are dealing with the key cancer diagnosis in this country. Um, so let's include those patients in our study. What are the kind of dietary questions I have? The first question I have is, one arm of the study should be, you tell people, eat when you're hungry, eat whatever you want, um, don't stress out about it, um, don't feel bad if you're not hungry, don't force yourself to eat if you're not hungry, do what feels right to you, our goal here is to maximize quality of life. We don't want this to be an undue stressor, your diet. That shouldn't be on top of all your worries. This should not be one. Tell your family around you, you talk to the family and you say, let him, let him or her be. Let them be. If they're hungry, they'll, they'll eat. You know, they shouldn't feel, if they want to eat ice cream, they can have ice cream. If they want to eat anything, you know, be flexible. Don't put a lot of stress in it. Um, let's, let's try to remove this as a source of stress in your life, the diet. Okay, that's one arm. Second arm. Second arm, maybe we'll have, say, let's do what the standard of care is today, which is, um, you know, well-intentioned loved ones and physicians encouraging people to eat more, try to keep their weight up, to try to eat when they're not hungry, um, try to take boost and other insure and those kinds of things. Um, that's arm two, uh, what we do now. Arm three might be, you know, some diet that somebody thinks is promising. And, you know, it's not a big interest of mine, but, you know, somebody has some proposal and that arm four will be some other such proposal. And what do I want to measure here? Well, of course, I want to measure as a de facto primary endpoint, of course, all-cause mortality. I would be curious to know whether or not any diet, any of these arms actually has an impact on that. Second thing is I want to measure our quality of life, um, the patient's quality of life. Um, my hypothesis being that maybe the arm where there is no pressure, I don't want to use the stronger word, but some might say at times... Um, affectionate nagging. If that's removed, maybe the quality of life might be a little bit higher because I know this can be a great source of stress in people's lives. Um, I also want to measure the stress level of family members. I think a lot of family members, um, they feel as if it's part of their duty to encourage the loved one to eat, even if they may not be hungry or craving certain foods, and they may put stress on their own shoulders. And so I guess one hypothesis would be what is the difference in mortality? Does this actually improve someone's longevity? And what is the difference in stress to patient and caregivers? I think those are kind of key questions. So this is kind of the, the diet study that I would envision as would be sort of an important thing. And then I can think of other important diet studies would be like you know diet studies looking at people on restricted diets and those kinds of things like neutropenic precautions and things of that nature. Okay, these are important diet studies. Okay. Um, when I think about what would be rather uninformative clinical studies, I think uncontrolled studies, you know, they, they're higher up there. Uh, the uncontrolled study that Dr. Mukherjee is writing about in the New York Times Magazine uh, is described in another article. Of course, there's just more than one article. Uh, this is in the, the Guardian. It's called Top Oncologists to Study Effective Diet on Cancer Drugs. Dr. Mukherjee says the trial is first in a series on, quote, rethinking human diets for cancer, end quote. Well, that seems a bit of an overstatement, rethinking human diets for cancer. It is an uncontrolled study of 40 patients with lymphoma, which is a tumor type 
the only tumor type for which PI3 kinase drugs, idelalisib, copanlisib, and duvalisib, are approved. And they're approved on the basis of response rate and some straw man randomized trials testing IR versus R in follicular lymphoma, for instance, which is a very foolish study, uh, which is you know something that I talked about on this podcast elsewhere about the poor control arms we use. Um, but I would say that you know it's a rather unimpressive class of medications. Um, another thing adding to the unimpressive class of medications is the fact that the PI3 kinase mutations are perhaps the third or fourth most recurrent mutation in all tumor genomes, and uh, astute listeners can double-check me on that, but I believe that was the last time when I consulted TCGA data. Um, so it's a common mutation. There was a lot of interest in it, perhaps rightly so, um, but it has very little clinical uptake. Um, these drugs have very small indications, um, but they plan on doing an uncontrolled study in the one tumor type or setting where you know the drugs are known to have activity, and they're going to combine it with the ketogenic diet. So let's say you get some response rate out of the study, 50%. Well, is that higher or lower than if you just gave them the drug without the diet? And the answer is, no one will know. And they can say, well, you can do cross-trial comparisons. But these comparisons are already going to be kind of very flawed because um, there's going to be some unique selection biases on this particular study. And that's probably true because it's been advertised oh so widely to millions and millions of people. And my problem here is that the advertisement of this study is disproportionate to its scientific rationale, its promise, its interest. Um, if this were not being conducted by someone who happened to write a best-selling nonfiction book, it would not be getting any media coverage, which is the exact amount of media coverage it deserves. None at all, because it's just another phase one, two study. No more or less promising than any other phase one or two study. In fact, it won't even be able to answer the question very rigorously because it doesn't have a control arm. The right study, of course, would be to randomize patients to PI3 kinase inhibitor, plus or minus the ketogenic diet, and at least in your phase two to look at response rate and to actually set like maybe a 15% increase in response rate to declare it positive. I mean, we don't want, you know, 2%, 5% response rate increases. We want 15, 20, 30% increase. If you're not getting that, then, you know, you bust. That's what I think a reasonable study would be. Okay. Now let's talk a little bit about Dr. Gowande and this checklist and the checklist manifesto and all this. The checklist, it's, it's this simple idea that, you know, if only in medicine doctors followed checklists more often, you know, outcomes would be better. And what was it based on? You know, some of the early work that came out of Michigan was an uncontrolled study that's showing the implementation of a checklist lowered central line infections from, you know, something high to near zero. Um, but this kind of overstates the problem because a checklist for a simple repeated procedure that may not be scalable to checklists for all sorts of different things. And, you know, Dr. Gawande has done checklists in surg for surgical site infections, for instance. And this checklist has been studied in Ontario hospitals in a New England Journal paper that failed to show the benefit that had been shown in some other studies. Um, many of these studies are before or after studies, non-randomized studies, um, poorly randomized studies, cluster randomized studies, perhaps. Um, studies that, not to say that cluster randomized trials aren't good. Of course, they're good. That's another story. But some of these studies are published in poor journals for a reason. Okay. But yet, the checklist idea gained lots of traction because the person who gained celebrity from writing about the experiences of a resident and who's a good writer is choosing to use their podium to broadcast this particular intervention. So what's the lesson here? Um, I find this to be problematic. I think one of the things you hear a lot about is whether media coverage of medical articles has 
is truthful and has fidelity to what the author showed, what they didn't show, what the uncertainties are, whether or not these articles that are written have appropriate caveats and nuance, whether they cover cost, whether they have impartial commentators, that's part of what it means to have good news coverage of articles. The second thing that we don't hear a lot about is the choice of what articles to cover themselves. This is work we published in PLOS a few years ago where we looked at, of all the journal articles that appeared in a set of high impact factor journals and all the news articles that covered high impact factor journal articles in a contemporary set, what percent of the time are they covering the same things and different things, that kind of stuff. First thing, randomized control trials accounted for a sizable proportion of journal articles, but they were much more infrequently covered in the news. Observational studies were much more covered, and the stories that were covered their observational tended to have smaller sample size and things of that nature. In other words, the newspapers chose to cover studies of generally lower credibility than the studies that were appearing in high impact factor journals. Newspapers dove down the hierarchy of medical evidence to pick the studies on blueberries and you know seductive topics like that. And uh, I'll just close with the final thought, which is that I think doctors who achieve celebrity through writing about the art of medicine have to be very careful that they do not disproportionately cover their own pet projects that would otherwise go uncovered um, based on that celebrity uh, because the science is not warranting that level of dissemination. And the keto diet is certainly not ready for prime time. And we can talk, what would it take to get it ready for prime time? You would need a randomized controlled trial that randomizes patients to a PA3 kinase drug um, for indication for which it's approved. Uh, in combination with a regular diet versus the keto diet and the PA3 kinase drug. And you really would need to show that by following that diet, there's improved overall survival, ideally. And you would also need to show that the burden, cost, um, and difficulty in adhering to that diet uh, does not outweigh uh, any survival benefit. And the way to do that would be meticulously collected quality of life data over time. So we're talking about a long um, perhaps year or two year, because you would be looking at sort of a relapse refractory setting, randomized control trial with survival and quality of life endpoints. Um, and we are not even nearly close to that. And that's when it would be ready for prime time. That's when it'd be ready for a New York Times Magazine article. Uh, and certainly not now when you haven't enrolled yet for your phase one, two trial on the basis of bioplausibility, uh, a bioplausibility that exists for many, 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 many putative compound combinations or diet or drug or whatever you want. There's, you know, bioplausibility is a dime a dozen, we like to say. So those are my thoughts. And, and the same goes for the checklist, of course. It wouldn't uh, and shouldn't have gotten the attention it deserves. It's no panacea. Um, and there are lots of other um, quality and performance metrics that we could have thought more about. Um, and we shouldn't have thought disproportionately about the checklist. And if you really want it to be ready for prime time, there's an easy way to do that. Do randomized control trials showing that the routine use of the checklist improves outcomes over the best available care. Um, and I don't want to delve into too much in the surgery saves lives checklist paper, but we can debate that about some of this, the hospitals that was tested in. All right. So those are my thoughts on that topic. Shifting gears, I want to talk 
about cabozantinib for progressive metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer following docetaxel, a combined analysis of two phase three trials. This is published in the European Urology Oncology Journal. It was accepted on November 13th, 2018. This is an unusual paper. It is one, two, three, three pages long. And it's a reanalysis of two randomized controlled trials. It's three pages long. There's no method section. There's no introduction. There's no discussion. Um, it says at the end, this work was originally presented as part of a poster. Um, and what does it show? Well, let me tell you a little bit about the history of cabozantinib. And astute listeners can correct me if I get any of this wrong, because this is a history really from memory. Uh, I remember when, in around 2013, uh, we had the JCO publication showing that cabozantinib for patients with prostate cancer and lots of bone mets resulted in some response and improvement in symptoms, and people got very excited about cabozantinib, particularly the people at Exalexis Corporation who are the makers of cabozantinib, because prostate cancer is a large market share, and if your drug has activity in prostate cancer and you can get an indication there, that could be quite lucrative. So they got very excited. Then, lo and behold, they ran a randomized controlled trial testing their drug, cabozantinib, against everyone's favorite straw man in prostate cancer, prednisone. And that randomized trial asked whether or not cabozantinib could improve all-cause mortality. And that phase three trial was called Comet 1, and it was published just a few short years later. And it showed absolutely no improvement in all-cause mortality from cabozantinib over prednisone with a p-value of 0.213, and curves that are largely superimposable. This was a big bust. And if I recall, I remember reading some newspaper headlines that said the Exalexis Corporation had to lay off approximately 75% of their workforce in the wake of this negative study because it was a big blow to that company. They also ran the Comet 2 trial, which is a randomized controlled trial looking at some symptomatic endpoint scores uh, that tested their drug, cabozantinib, against mitoxantrone. Uh, which is a drug known to have a symptomatic benefit in metastatic castor-resistant prostate cancer. This trial was halted after about 190 some odd patients, sorry, 119 patients uh, were included because of the disappointing uh, complete failure results of Comet 1. So there you have it. And, and it was halted and it was negative when it was halted, of course. So there you have it, two negative randomized control trials. Just so listeners know how many people were enrolled in Comet 1 before we found out. It was a total of 1,028 patients. That's quite a lot of patients. It's very interesting. When you have a condition where the median survival is just about 10 or 11 months, which is what it was in Comet 1, and do you need 1,000 patients to test whether a new drug improves overall survival? As I've explained on this podcast before, I do not believe you need so many patients to test it if you were asking the question honestly. The only reason you would need so many patients to test it is if you were hoping that you would get a statistically significant sliver of benefit that you could use to cajole regulators into giving you a lucrative drug approval. And you were not confident that your drug had a large delta, a big benefit. Because if you were confident your drug had a large delta, you wouldn't need 1,000 people to show it. That's for sure. So, two totally negative studies. These authors sought to find a subgroup that may have benefited, and that's what they did here in this European Association of Urology paper. Um, they looked at things like age, DFS interval, hemoglobin, PSA level, ALKFOS, albumin, bone scan lesion area, lactate dehydrogenase, 
And unfortunately, they found, quote, no interaction was statistically significant, indicating no differential impact of cabozantinib on overall survival for any prognostic factor evaluated or risk group based on quartiles. In other words, even though we tried to p-hack this study and find you some subgroup that may have benefited uh, in a post hoc fashion without any rhyme or reason to what we were looking at, we could not even do that. This drug looks like it's consistently negative. There was no flu positive result that could inspire us to study this drug more. But then they double down and they try one more time to p-hack this study to get a sliver of benefit. And there they got lucky. After adjusting for all potential prognostic factors in a multivariate model, treatment with cabozantinib versus the comparator was associated with better OS. Hazard ratio 0.8, 95% confidence interval 0.67 to 0.95, P 0.012. And that P value, my friends, is less than 0.05. And if you have a P value less than 0.05, it doesn't matter how many times you sliced and diced that data set and how many ways you looked at it and held it up to the light and held your breath and held a prayer, you have a P less than 0.05 and you can hang your hat on that, my friends. Well, that's what the authors are getting at. And then they actually have the audacity to conclude these data suggest that cabozantinib may confer benefits in a rationally selected patient population. Although actually it doesn't show that because you looked at many different prognostic groups and you found no significant interaction p-value. So you have failed to say how that could be rationally selected. Our hypothesis that those with higher prognostic risk was not demonstrated. Okay, that's right. And then this, they have the audacity to write, evaluation of cabozantinib in a better powered trial or optimal patient population guided by the discovery of a potential predictive molecular biomarker activity could resurrect a role for this drug in patients with metastatic castor-resistant prostate cancer and should be considered. Wow, that is some stunning arrogance. When you have a randomized trial of over a thousand people and you have absolutely no signal of all-cause benefit and you have spent considerable time to p-hack your way to find a sliver of benefit. This is the problem with oncology. Where do I even start? One, these are randomized controlled trials. Why do we randomize? We randomize to minimize confounding. That's not only for the confounding variables that you can measure, but potential unmeasured confounding variables that you may not be aware of. But on average, when you have thousands of people and you randomize them, even in two-to-one randomization as this study was, you will distribute those variables equally in both prognostic groups. That's the virtue of randomizing. Adjusting for certain prognostic variables and not others after the fact is not necessary. That's why you did the randomized trial. It's literally perhaps even introducing some of the confounding that you sought to avoid by randomization. Moreover, no one's doing this for the positive studies in oncology. You're only doing this until you get the result you want, which is some positive result here. This is the problem. Um, this recently on Twitter, I tweeted out 15 of the most interesting papers, uh, papers and podcasts and articles I'd read in 2018. Number one on my list is Brian Nozick's same data set, many analysts. This is a paper where the same data set of referees giving red cards to soccer players is given to 29 analytic teams. And they're all asked one question. Is there a bias towards giving more red cards towards players with darker skin colors? They're given to 29 different analytic teams. And these are good teams with good stats people. And what they show is there is a range of potential answers. All 29 produce their response. There's a few people who find no statistically significant difference in the, in the rate. There's a bunch of people who find a modest, 
odds ratio 1.1 to maybe 1.35-ish, darker skinned players getting slightly more red cards. And there's a few outliers who find even more dramatic relationships. What's the point here? The same data set can be looked at by many, many different people who make choices in the analytic plans and essentially get a variety of answers that they consider are plausible. Now, this is a unique question, I pointed out, because this is a question where there's probably only one answer that we think is plausible. Either there's no real bias or there's a modest bias against darker skinned players. That's what we as a society think is a plausible thing you could find in this data set. Pick some topic where there's more plausible options, like does the IVC filter improve mortality? There are strong opinions on both sides of that debate. Give that to 29 teams. I bet you'll find a wider range of responses and how they analyze it. Similarly, you give a negative trial to a bunch of people, uh, some of which have financial conflicts of interest with the manufacturer, and you ask them to reanalyze this um, with the idea or the incentive that finding some benefit would be a good thing, and lo and behold, they can do that. Um, you can find a retrospective group of people that you adjust for certain prognostic factors and now suddenly your drug actually works. This is literally the problem in oncology, which is that we cannot accept negative results and we will find some way to analyze the data such that that p-value is less than 0.05 and then we're happy. Um, this is a negative trial. You don't need to run another trial in unselected prostate cancer patients to know it's negative. You had a thousand people. You were overpowered to find a statistically significant, clinically ambiguous or meaningless sliver of statistical benefit. You didn't find that. And then you ran a second trial that you halted because you were so stunned by your negative results. In the absence of a clear and convincing rationale to pursue this compound, this compound should be abandoned. Uh, we cannot uh, subject prostate cancer patients to clinical trials merely to satisfy the egos of oncologists who cannot accept failure. Um, I don't know what else to say here. This is, a, this is an unusual three-page paper. Um, it makes a quite a bold claim. Uh, it's almost surely incorrect. It almost surely is the product of motivated analysis. It is why people are critical of our field and profession. Um, it is problematic, and it probably wouldn't have come across my radar had it not been for some tweets. So that's the that's the problem with with amplifying the signal because sometimes somebody sees the signal, they don't like what they see. So. On that positive note, we're going to turn to our interview with Dr. Jane Zhu. I'm back here in Plenary Session HQ with Dr. Jane Zhu. It's a pleasure to have you here today, Jane. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, you're an assistant professor of medicine here at the Oregon Health and Science University. You're a practicing general internist. Mm -hmm. Let me tell listeners a little bit about your background. You did your undergraduate at Duke University, and then you went on to best medical school, Harvard Medical School. You did your MD, <laughs> and you did a public policy degree from the Kennedy School. Uh -huh. uh, you went on to do your residency at the University of California, San Francisco, and then you went back out to the East Coast to do a fellowship at the University of Pennsylvania in their Institute for Healthcare Policy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually, uh, the Leonard Davis Institute of Health Economics. The Leonard Davis Institute of mm -hmm. Health Economics. Mm -hmm. And that's run by Dr. David Ash. 
Uh, no, he used to be an executive director, um, and um, uh, it's actually uh, Dan Polsky now. Dr. Dan Polsky mm-hmm, is running it. wonderful. Mm-hmm. So I've been uh, across coasts all over the place and now landed in Portland. And now you're here in Portland, Oregon, where you're on the faculty. And you're new faculty here. You've been here for just a few months. Very new, just three months. And, um, and I adjusted. And I was on your recruitment uh, committee. That's uh, right. I want listeners to know, but I did a derelict job, and I never met you. Until <laughs> That's right. <laughs> until you had actually started That's right. This is a this is just our second meeting. That we, sec- yeah. That's true. It's a second meeting, <laughs> despite the fact that I I should have been doing something. <laughs> it's a pleasure to have you here. Thanks. Before we jump into these topics, and we're going to cover a few very interesting topics: the Affordable Care Act and the interlocking roles of advocacy and scholarship. Um, why don't you tell listeners a little bit about, you know, how is your um, your clinical um, presence and your research structured? You know, what what does the, what does your practice look like? Sure. So I joined the faculty here, um, as I mentioned, in September, and it is in a clinician investigator position. So eighty um, percent research, uh, 20% clinical, and um, as you mentioned, I'm a primary care doctor, and um, so I have two half days of clinic um, a week where I see patients, and obviously with my chart and you know the the other kind of responsibilities outside of the clinic setting, I, I do a lot of that. You know, um, it spills over is what you're that. saying. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't just stay in those two half days. No, does it, it doesn't. It never mm-hmm. does. Um, but most of my other time is you know um, doing research, doing health policy. I'm plugged into a couple centers here, one by John McConnell who works a lot on Medicaid. Um, evaluations, Medicaid policy. Mm-hmm. Um, Listeners will know that uh, John McConnell and his team have published uh, in recent years um, quite a string of papers, I think, um, that are really just wonderful Medicaid papers, a um, number of which have appeared in JAM Internal Medicine, among other journals. Mm-hmm. And John is a healthcare economist by training who uh, spent a lot of time in the emergency department uh, in their division, but uh, now uh, really runs his own shop there on the waterfront here yeah. in Portland. I love working with health economists, actually. It's you one do. of my favorite things to do. Uh-huh. They just have such a unique perspective. Um, I've always wanted to be a health economist, but I guess I wasn't smart enough to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so I ended up doing medicine, um, which I love. But it's great to have teams, especially when you're doing research and clinical work, to have different perspectives on the healthcare system, especially when the problems you're trying to address are kind of big systemic issues where, you know, interdisciplinary thinking is really important. So I echo that. I think that, like, we've seen in the last few years a number of papers on Twitter um, that were, one might say, exclusively done by MDs or exclusively done by health economists or something like that, and uh, they get a lot of fire from the other camp. And so it's always nice to kind of approach the problems with an interdisciplinary um, team uh, because then you kind of um, understand what your blind spots are because we all have blind spots in our fields. Mm -hmm. Some people may know that there's a paper out there about uh, the use of surrogates and incentivizing market development that I was very annoyed with and had a lot of criticism for a few years ago. But we'll save that for another day. Let me ask you. Mm-hmm. The Affordable Care Act, is that an important piece of legislation in health care? <laughs> <laughs> is it important? Oh, I love that question. Um, I think uh, it depends on what camp you're in, mm-hmm. political camp. Um, but yes, I would say it is really important. Um, it's obviously been in the news a lot. And as we know, um, for those of us who are following the news and even those of us who don't, it's uh, the marketplaces have been in flux um, quite a bit in the past couple of years. And there's a lot of uh, factors that explain that, which I'm sure we will have a chance to discuss shortly. Yeah. Um, but you know, from my perspective, um, as a healthcare provider first and foremost, and as a patient 
having been in a patient in the system, mm-hmm. it's a huge piece of legislation um, that's really been a really great first step in uh, you know securing access to care for a lot of people. That being said, there are continued problems. Um, there's a lot of room for improvement, and uh, you know we can talk about that uh, yeah, relating we'll to some yeah. of the work I've been doing. Yeah, and I think that you put it well. So it um, uh, in at least in the course of our careers, there was once a point in time when you know, there was a large fraction of the patients we saw that may have had no coverage at all. And, uh, you know, no matter what you feel about the limitations or strengths of the Affordable Care Act, the one thing we have to recognize is that percentage is a lot smaller in recent years. Mm -hmm. Now, you've done some very interesting work about Affordable Care Act, about marketplaces, about the number of uh, insurers in a marketplace and what that means for premiums and things of that nature. Um, Should we jump in there or should we first explain I don't know. What, yeah, you want yeah, a little I mean, background? What know, is the marketplace? I, I can't yeah. think of, for most people, I can't think of a drier subject than <laughs> health insurance and yeah. health uh, health insurance marketplaces. It's a really fascinating subject for me. I personally find it really interesting, but it might be helpful. It's it's quite a complex system, and it might be helpful just to take a step back and give a brief overview of Sounds what good. that yeah. looks like in the ACA. Um, and so listeners might know um, broadly, you know, about the ACA and um, that is, it established marketplaces where individuals, families, and uh, small employers um, can actually buy insurance um, plans. The way that those plans are actually structured is around a tiered uh, system. Um, and so you might have heard that these are metal tiers. Um, so platinum, uh, they're all like mm-hmm. kind of pieces of jewelry that mm-hmm. people might precious like. Precious metals. Yeah, precious metals. Okay. Um, but it's platinum, gold, silver, bronze, mm-hmm. and then catastrophic plans. And each of those uh, metal tiers corresponds to a different actuarial value. Mm-hmm. And what actuarial value refers to is the percentage of expenditures associated with the average enrollee. Mm-hmm. So as an example, a bronze plan has 60% actuarial value. Um, a silver plan has 70% actuarial value, which means that for an average enrollee, the plan will cover about 70% of, of their the, needs, of their healthcare expenditures. Uh-huh. Obviously, if you're using the healthcare system more or you're sicker, um, you know, that might vary between people mm-hmm. because that average is averaged across mm-hmm. the risk pool. I see. Um, and, and so and the platinum covers what percentage? Over 90%? Uh, yeah, so it's it's it goes up each time, 10%, so 80%, okay. yeah. And 90%. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know what's interesting about the way that the uh, marketplaces are are structured is that there's two really important subsidy programs mm-hmm. that have made the news a lot in recent years. So there's a huge program um, that are the federal kind of premium subsidies, mm-hmm. um, and that is basically offered to people who are less than 400 percent of federal poverty level, mm-hmm. and it's meant to. Um, reduce the cost of monthly payments for you know coverage, mm-hmm. your premiums. And so, if I were to ask you, like, you know, like, what do you think four hundred percent of federal poverty level is? Just guessing. Uh-huh. What might you guess? That's good. I I have a guess, but I guess um, I know I kind of know probably guess what you're getting at. So here's my guess. My guess is it's like. Um, $30,000. It's much higher. Oh. Yeah, so what's really shocking is that people assume that, you know, 400% of federal poverty level is quite low, but for a family of four, it's actually uh, about $100,000. Oh, that's good. And for an individual, it's 48000 So you can imagine that across the, you know, the eligible enrollees for marketplace plans, there's actually quite a few of them that would 
be eligible for these subsidies. I see. And see, they would get lower premiums. So the federal government actually funds this subsidy program. I see. There's a second uh, subsidy program, and it's um, called cost-sharing reductions, which you may have heard about because it was the subject of the House versus Burwell case that went um, to court. Mm -hmm. Um, And basically, the argument behind that, the controversy behind that was that um, Republicans said that, you know, Congress never appropriated this funding, and so it's illegal. Mm -hmm. These payments are illegal. What those payments did was they're meant to reduce the cost of -of out-of-pocket exposures Mm -hmm. um, for enrollees, so out-of-pocket cost-sharing being deductibles, you know, co-payments, co-insurance. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you were under like 250% of federal poverty level, mm-hmm. um, then you would be eligible for these payments. Mm-hmm. And the insurers would actually cover the cost of those subsidies. And then the federal government under this program reimbursed the insurers. The insurers, I see. Um, and so I've seen estimates that vary, but uh, some say about 50% of the enrollees in the marketplaces were qualifying for the subsidy um, cost-sharing payments. I see. So this is to put a dent in that 30%, 20% that the person has to pay that the metal plans don't pay. Exactly. It's to cover for the out-of-pocket costs, which, you know, for, um, so there's like kind of two different sources of you know, cost pains for the consumer. One is at the the premium premium level, Mm -hmm. um, which is your insurance essentially to buy that plan. And then the other is what you're going to be spending when once you actually start using services. And so the ACA marketplaces are based off of of addressing both of those two subsidy programs. The result of the case, the you know yeah. the the, the court, court case, case yeah. um, and what happened in October of 2017 was that the Trump administration basically ended the federal uh, reimbursement program for the cost sharing subsidies. I see. So the premium assistant still assistance still exists, exists in the same form. The cost sharing reductions uh, technically still exist, but in a different form. But that's because that was a job killer wasn't it? (laughs) (laughs) That's what some people might say. Some people might say, but... Actually, it was interesting because Trump um, said he made this analogy that the cost-sharing payments were akin to, like, uh, the federal government bailing out the auto industry, (laughs) um, which is a really kind of um, silly analogy. And the main reason being that now the cost-sharing payments, the, the federal reimbursement system is gone, but that's still being provided. So the insurers right now, what they've done, most insurers have actually taken the cost of the cost-sharing subsidy payments and put them on top of the premiums. Of course, so they move it that direction, right? Yeah. And then the other thing foolish about that analogy, I think, is that um, the bailing out of the auto industry was uh, heralded as largely successful, having restored uh, the automobile industry. <laughs> so I, I think maybe it is a fair analogy. <laughs> maybe. Maybe it is a maybe. fair analogy. Maybe we're not sophisticated enough to, to catch on to that. Um, but what's interesting now is that because the um, cost-sharing payments are now on top of the premiums, mm-hmm. Um, for most people, as I mentioned, the premium study subsidies still exist, right? So if the premiums increase for the silver plans, which is what the um, the premium uh, assistant amount mm-hmm. is based off of, is the cost of the, the silver plans, the second lowest cost silver plan. I see. Um, so it's pegged it, to that. Yeah. Exactly. It's pegged to that. So if mm-hmm. the premiums increase, 
the premium assistance also increases. So the federal government's paying for it one way or the other. Exactly. I see. So the federal government is still paying for this, but it's just borne out in a different way. And in fact, people much smarter than I am, um, you know, in budgetary offices have calculated out the cost of that. And it's much more expensive for the federal government to be paying uh, for this <laughs> really? uh, this way. Through the premium, right, rather exactly. than the out-of-pocket expense. Oh, that's interesting. Exactly. And so... So it's a loss for the federal government. In the lo- Yes, mm. in the long run, yeah. Job um, killer. Which is really interesting. I think what is particularly relevant for the consumer yeah. is that um, so, you know, with the premium rises, you get a premium assistance. The majority of enrollees don't actually experience that premium increase. So, as I mentioned, 400% of federal poverty level is quite a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And there are estimates, you know, about 80% of people qualify for um, the premium assistance. I see. The people who suffer from the premium increases are the ones above, just above that threshold, just above the 400% federal poverty level. Oh, I see. They're what the you're ones saying. who end up bearing the full cost of those premium rises. I see. The premium subsidy threshold was higher than the out of pocket subsidy threshold. And so that's why it's actually imposed a greater burden on the federal government. And the people who really pay the penalty are people just above that 400%, four times uh, poverty limit. Exactly. And those are the people that you're hearing about in the news uh-huh. or on Twitter Whose or on Facebook. Whose premiums are through the roof and they can't afford them. Exactly. Like because ACA's. they're too rich. They're simply too rich. <laughs> that's what they I hear. Yeah. I don't know about that. Yeah. I wouldn't put that label on them. But they're just above the threshold. They're just rich enough. Right. To not qualify for the subsidies that have been helping everybody else. See, that's why you cut back on your hours at work, which is, <laughs> but I mean, but not in a joke, but some people do actually strategize that way to like actually lose a little bit of income so that they can fall within it. Yeah, that I mean, that opens up a whole new can of worms Unintended that economists, yeah. um, you know, study about where the thresholds are and what people do to respond to those. Mm. Um, but. That's Regression for discontinuity. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, yeah. For, that's for another time and day. But the one thing, the other thing I wanted to make a point of is that when we talk a lot about healthcare cost, I think it so easily can fall into this um, discussion where we spend a lot of time talking about policies to lower out-of-pocket costs associated with medications or procedures or hospitalizations. Mm-hmm. But we can't forget that even if the cost is not out-of-pocket, um, that cost often translates into increased premiums. And increased premiums, um, that hurts the average person and is probably largely or perhaps partly responsible for the fact that, you know, the average living wage in this country really hasn't increased that much in the last 30 or 40 years, in part because that increased economic productivity that could come to you as wages is now going to your health care benefit. Mm-hmm. So, you know, some people think that, like, look, if, you're, if your co-pays are low, success. But that's not always success when you're pouring 20% of GDP in healthcare and your income is stagnating uh, and you're perhaps deeply unhappy about that. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that I think that points out is, you know, a lot of people say, well, I don't want to be the one who um, is subsidizing for someone else's healthcare, et cetera, et cetera. But the way the system works, someone always bears the brunt of that cost. Someone pays for it. Um, And um, often it ends up being the taxpayers anyway at the mm-hmm. end. And so I think that's a point that's sometimes forgotten. Yeah. yeah. And um, um, I think that's an excellent point. Okay. So you've introduced this concept of the tiers of the subsidies. Mm-hmm. Uh, what other concept does the listener need to know to understand your paper? 
Well, so, I mean, in general, the context for, for this descriptive study uh, that was published last year in JAMA Internal Medicine um, is that in 2017, about half of insurers actually left the market. They exited. Mm. Um, And there's a lot of reasons for that. And I'll talk a little bit more about that when we kind of go through this a little bit. That actually was corresponded to a concurrent increase in premiums Mm. during that time. So for the silver plans, the benchmark silver plans Mm -hmm. in the ACA marketplaces, they experienced double-digit increases in their premiums, so about 25%. Um, And so what we wanted to do was we kind of uh, wanted to look at the extent to which premium increases were associated with insurer or issuer count, Mm -hmm. Um, so the number of insurers um, in the markets. So hypothesis, as competition goes down, they can get away with murder and charge premium increases. Huh? <laughs> that's a yeah. I mean, that's a great hypothesis. Mm. It simplifies the situation a little bit because, as I mentioned, there's a lot of other external factors that mm-hmm. are playing into these plan exits and premium increases as well. Um, but that's a great kind of you know layperson summary of of what we were trying to look at. That's the extent of my abilities. So what we did was um, we just used. And this is, as I mentioned, a descriptive study. There's not much interesting stuff in the methodology, but we did use um, publicly available data from healthcare.gov. You can download it today if you're interested in looking at it yourself. Um, But all this data is publicly available and Mm. and, and open for kind of research purposes and exploration. So we took that data and um, we essentially identified the insurers that were selling a qualified health plan um, in each of about 2,000 counties in 38 states. Mm -hmm. Um, That's the information that we had available to us. Um, And um, essentially what we did was test whether premium growth for markets that had stable numbers of insurers were different than premium growth in markets with declining numbers of insurers. Right. And then we looked specifically at the effect modification of monopoly markets or uh-huh. markets that only had one insurer I see. Um, from 2016 to 2017. Okay. And the last thing I'll say is we actually weighted the analysis by the number of enrollees um, to give a better estimate of what percentage of enrollees are actually faced with these premium increases because you know you might have a plan that only has I see. a right. certain number. But so a 25% increase in a very tiny population doesn't get the same weight as a 25% increase in a huge population where a lot of people are paying a lot more. Exactly. Okay. Right. Um, and so what we found was that between 2016 and 2017, um, the percentage of enrollees facing a monopoly market or a single insurer market rose from about 3% to 27%. So mm. quite a bit more Jeez, so, okay. people. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Um, only about 4% of consumers across um, about 80 counties saw an increase in the total number of insurers. I see. So, so in ve- other words, some people were, um, they, there's only one game left in town for about a quarter of people, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Um, but the people in whom they had more options was almost nobody, 4%. Right, exactly. Okay. Um, and so what we found was that in these markets that had became new monopolies. So um, a number of, they may have had more um, insurers in the market, mm-hmm. but a number of them left. Uh-huh. And then there was one. Um, that premiums increased from about $260 to almost $400, um, a weighted average of about 48%. And this is monthly premium or? Uh... Yeah, monthly premium, exactly. Oh, geez. Yeah, oh. so quite quite a bit of money yeah. for most folks. Um, 
And that effect was much less pronounced in markets where the number of issuers either stayed the same or where the number of issuers or insurers decreased but not to one. So where there were a couple of um, insurers still left in the market, there was much lower premium growth. So even if you went from four to two, that wasn't as bad as going from two to one. Right. Monopoly really drives this. Yeah, I mean, that's. I think that's a simplistic way of saying it, um, that you know potentially in monopoly markets, there's you know not as much competition and therefore the uh, insurers can set whatever they want. And I think another really simplistic, oversimplistic, uh, conclusion from this data would be that, oh, look, here's proof that the ACA marketplaces aren't doing well, that they're not fostering competition. They're failing. I think that that is the wrong conclusion to draw from this. That Obamacare is failing. Yeah, that is it's absolutely wrong. the wrong okay, conclusion right. to, to draw from this. Um, and I think we have to be really cautious about interpreting this data within the context of everything else that's been going on. What I will say is there are questions that I would raise about um, the subsidy structures of the ACA um, and um, whether that encourages monopoly insurers to raise the price of premiums knowing that most people will never see that premium increase because there is a federal subsidy there in place. Oh, I see. Um, no skin in the game for the average consumer so they can get away with it, so they don't feel pressure. It's a it's a hypothesis. Well, here's another hypothesis. So you, I guess you're showing an association between um, becoming a monopoly and an increase in, in premiums that doesn't happen um, if you still have a few options left and certainly didn't happen if you have more options than you had before. Now, is it possible that, um, you know, we're trying to tease out the causality of what's going on here, is it possible that there's something about um, that marketplace that led to both things happening, premiums going up and a consolidation? For instance, those people are really sick or something. They got stricken with a new malady or something like that, and, and that's why uh, the insurer got scared because they don't want to be around all these people who are newly sick, and uh, and then the premiums got to go up because we've got to get more, more health care costs. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly possible. I would say there's Online. a lot of other... Um, factors just as you're talking about that are going on in the larger um, kind of uh, climate mm -hmm. landscape that are driving both of these things happening at the same time. So, I mean, that th what I had mentioned is a, um, a theory. I think people, economists, are probably studying this in a way that's much more sophisticated than than what we're doing here in a descriptive paper. Mm -hmm. What this um, this data kind of suggests are places where we could study more. Um, you know, why insurers are exiting the marketplace, um, what the effects of that might be, um, and what the premium growth, kind of what the implications of the, that uh, has on kind of the consumer population. I see, yeah. um, But I will say, so you brought up a really good point um, about what other things are going on here. Um, and I think there are several really important topics to bring up here, and that might open up a can of worms, but I think it might be worth it. So number one, I think, um, as I mentioned, there's been a lot of administrative flux uh, at the federal level. Um, a lot of it was around this cost-sharing reduction payment program. Um, and in, as I mentioned, the this program stopped in 2017 in October. Mm -hmm. and because so, it was a job killer. Yeah. No, well, no. <laughs> you tricked me. <laughs> I'm no, not no, going to no. agree with that. Okay, but yeah. Um, yeah. I think, uh, you know, insurers were predicting that there was uncertainty around that and already making um, some changes when they were setting their premium rates the year before I see. about so, the possibility of that. And just to stress this point, um, uh, 
people think insurers really hate things that cost a lot. That's not what insurers hate. Insurers hate uncertainty. If they know it costs a lot and they can budget for it, they can plan for it, but if the market pace is in flux and you have somebody pulling the strings who is a very perhaps erratic person who may do one thing one day and another thing the other day, insurers would have a very difficult time coping with that uncertainty. So one thing you might see them do in response to tremendous uncertainty is we need to make sure we can handle a lot of uncertainty, which is raise premium. Yeah, that's a really nice way of, uh, I think, putting things. If someone was erratic. <laughs> yeah. Well, even if they, you know, I think especially yeah. in this, the policy being erratic. Yeah, it, it the policy is erratic. It definitely yeah. is um, is important. Um, and so that's one potential explanation around some of these premium increases. Mm-hmm. The other one is kind of market level factors like provider consolidation. So the way that as you mentioned, you know, insurers set their premiums is they predict what are our costs going to be. Um, and in markets that have providers, organizations coming together and having more negotiating power, those services often will cost more to the insurers. And so um, to, to, to kind of account for that, mm-hmm. premiums may go up. I see. Right. Um, and that's a, a trend that we're seeing kind of across the country um, with community hospitals and, um, you know, provider clinics and things like that coming together and forming bigger organizations. Um, the other, I think, important, um, I, th- I think one of the most important things to consider is uh, around having the optimal risk pool in these markets. And you had alluded to this earlier. So, um, you know, there was a Kaiser Family uh, Foundation poll. They do a health tracking poll, Mm -hmm. I think quarterly, um, around public opinion. And their last one actually showed that about 70% of the population who would be eligible for these marketplace plans had no idea when the deadline was. Mm. Um, (laughs) And a lot of that is around the fact that the federal um, you know, the federal government has cut advertisement, advertisement, outreach, and in this case, um, it's really important. This is what gets healthy young people out of the woodwork and buying their insurance plans. And we've already seen that this year, in particular, um, for 2019, the enrollment has dropped significantly compared to where it was before. I see. It's almost as if policies don't work well when the people in charge of making or running the policies want to trash the system. <laughs> almost <laughs> it's as, almost if as if that's true. <laughs> almost right. as if that's true. Yeah. yeah. Who would have thought? Who would have thought? Um, so so yeah. you're saying that, yeah, so they're not advertising as much, so you're not getting the risk pool with young, healthy people who can, um, you know, do what he- young, healthy people do in insurance markets, which is foot some of the bill um, and uh, not take a lot of the cash off the top of the pile. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, we actually went back and looked at, um, we used some RWJ data. It's a data set called Hicks Compare. Mm-hmm. And we... Um, uh, uh, align that with some other data sets to look at whether these premium increases and these market exits are different for state-based marketplaces versus federally facilitated marketplaces. So state-based marketplaces under the ACA having the um, the the power and and um, to to run their own operations mm-hmm. around the IT infrastructure, around enrollment, around selecting plans, having regulations around what types of plans and things <coughs> like that, and federally facilitated marketplaces being, you know, the Obamacare mm-hmm. like the 
the standard ones run by the federal government. And we actually found, and this I think is suggestive of how important marketing and enrollment outreach is, Mm -hmm. we actually found that the state-based marketplaces fared a lot better when it came to... Because all those governors didn't slash all their advertising budgets. Yeah, I mean, look at California, for Mm -hmm. example. Covered California spends quite a bit of money on enrollment outreach, and they've been very stable um, and doing quite well as as a, as a market. I see. Um, but beyond that, I think um, we're, we're seeing some new things happening, um, which might reveal some some changes to come down the pipeline. Um, so some of the listeners might know about kind of short-term plans. Um, have you heard about this Cat- as well? Emergency plans or short-term plans or... So there, there, there are short-term plans that used to be available to people mostly as a transitional plan, um, and uh, you know, available for you could sign up for like three months. Things at like time. Cobra. Um, no, it's le- it's less related to that. It's more marketplace plans. Mm. So they're like kind of private insurers, and you buy from them. I see. Um, and uh, they used to be around three months at a time, but now. Um, the Trump administration has been actively promoting short-term plans as an alternative to the um, marketplace plans. I see. They're cheaper. They have yeah. lower premiums, but they don't cover anything. Um, they're not. Ma- they they're not required to cover oh, like the, the ten ACA standards. Exactly, the ten essential uh, benefits. Okay. So they don't have to cover maternity um, care, emergency care, you know, mental health care services. Um, you name it, pharmaceuticals, they don't have to cover that. But they're going to suck away all the low-risk patients. Exactly. Uh, so, they're going to further put the markets yeah, in. Yeah, and there's uh, been changes in the regulations such that the short-term plans are now allowed to sell for up to you know a year. Uh, someone could sign up for a year under these plans with, a, with the uh, ability to renew um, up to three years. Right, so, so this so could... So hardly short-term anymore. Exactly, and it could certainly take away a group of people. Um, and then I would say uh, the last bit of change that's coming down the pipeline um, is the repeal of the individual mandate, which came with the passage of the tax bill mm-hmm. that we saw this past year. It was a budget bill, so they didn't require a two-thirds majority. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It was pretty smart for, for them I, to, to didn't revi- didn't require, go through that. Yeah, couldn't get filibustered, rather. Correction. Right, yeah. right. Um, and so you know, for the first time since 2014, if you don't buy a... A plan. You're a healthy individual. You don't buy a plan. You don't, you pay don't the get. Tax. Yeah, you don't get um, penalized financially, and so that's yet another barrier that um, to to seeing kind of increased enrollment um, for the ACA marketplace. So healthy people can just sit around and wait until they get sick, and they don't have to buy. They don't pay a penalty. Nothing discourages them from waiting to buy insurance. Well, there's no financial penalty in the yeah. same way that the individual mandate required. So um, definitely, you know, is a is a big um, barrier, I think, for people to get up and enroll in, in these plans. Um, and so there's, as you can kind of imagine, there's a whole smorgasbord of factors that are playing into how the marketplaces are going to fare moving forward, um, what premiums are going to do. What we do know is that for this um, upcoming 2019 uh, year that premiums have actually stabilized. They've actually reduced in some places. And because of how high the premium subsidies are, um, the premium assistance sub- su- subsidies mm-hmm. are, um, someone who qualifies for that can actually get a bronze plan now for free. They don't even have to, for many people, they don't even have wow. to pay for the premium. Um, and so the marketplace is a great option for people right now, but unfortunately, few people know about it. And then there's all these other things that are um, 
you know, about to happen or, or that will are happening that will affect enrollment in the future and may affect future, um, you know, premium setting for the insurers. So you see, can, you see all these as concerning trends for the stability of the marketplace in the future, potentially. Potentially, it's hard to know. I mean, I think there's a lot of really, um, you know, amazing people doing work in this area. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and if you're interested, you know, checking out the Urban Institute, they, I, I believe, they're doing a five-year evaluation of the marketplaces. Um, and uh, people at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, they're putting out lots of good, you know, issue briefs and things like that. Um, they're they're all tracking what's happening because I don't think anyone knows for sure yet. Um, especially since the political environment is so is so different Tumultuous. now. Yeah, it's very... I wonder, sort of a bigger picture question is, um, you know, I, I feel like you've done a really nice job at sort of outlining the, the friction points in the system. And I try to think like, you know, what is the upstream, like the root cause of this these difficulties is that it's very difficult in public policy to implement something uh, that's going to need to be run well and run for years, and then pass the baton off to people who want to literally trash what you know the machinery of what you've created. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if there are any public policy lessons of how things could have been launched at the outset in a way that it would have been harder to wreck in these kind of ways. So, for instance, would a public option have helped in some of these consolidated marketplaces? Um, would that have been a way to you know prevent some of this? Uh, and well, but but then some of it is that you just need administrators at HHS and and other agencies to actually try to run these things well. And we saw with Medicaid expansion, I think a lot of the governors actively like making decisions that are irrational from the perspective of of state governments. Yeah, I mean it's a really great question. If we had like a time machine, we could go back and say like, what right. could we do, what do could differently? You put in the ACA? I mean, yeah. the public option was just never an option because. Politically, you know, you politically it, it couldn't have been passed at the time that it was raised. Um, and I think a lot of this question about, you know, how can policies do well, like evidence-based, good policies yeah. do well in this yeah. kind of environment, it all ends up being um, a part of a struggle of values in the end. You know, like the policy itself could be very sound. It could save the government money. It could be morally right. Um, but if the value systems of different parties um, and different people in power conflict, it doesn't matter really what the policy is. Mm-hmm. The values end up taking you know, precedence. And so I think the ACA is a perfect example of that being, um, you know, created or modeled after Romney care. <laughs> right. Literally a Republican proposal initially. Yeah. And mm-hmm. now, you know, um, denigrated to quite a quite an extent by the same people whose idea it originally came from. So I think if all the things that I mean, there are successes in terms of its increased coverage, but perhaps the greatest success I think is that it has changed the mentality of a population because I remember in the 1990s, you know, we were literally having a debate like, well, should everyone have health insurance? So now that debate is gone. Yeah. It, it, no one can approach any debate saying should. Well, maybe we, some people should just not have insurance. No, that's that's a dead position. Yeah. But now I think the question is how can, you know, obviously you want people running these things who want to maximize coverage and lower costs. And it doesn't appear that their actions uh, follow that stated policy in many cases. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And, um, you know, you make a, you, you bring up a really great point that if there's anything underlying what the ACA has done outside of the policies and the outcomes, the increased coverage and things like that, um, it's that it's moved the goalpost on the conversation. Yeah. Like, 
I think without the ACA, we would not be having these conversations about Medicare for all and Medicaid expansion on state ballots. Like a lot of these conversations, I think, come out of the um, the progress that's come from a national conversation about the importance of healthcare access yeah. um, across populations. And so, you know, that's something that I think is um, priceless. Yeah, I and I agree with you. And but the other thing I think about in terms of the public option and that uh, is that I think a lot of the resistance politically was fear of being demolished in the midterm elections of 2010 in terms of why we didn't get that. And I feel like I don't know one of the lessons I wonder about going forward, and I don't know the answer because I'm not a political person, or I don't study it formally. But one of the things I wonder is um, when you have the votes lined up to push something through. Um, I wonder if you actually benefit politically by pushing through half measures, or if you benefit politically by just pushing through whatever you actually want to push through. Because in the end, all these compromises resulted in zero Republican votes for the Affordable Care Act. Uh, They had not a single vote. And they were compromises that may have actually, I don't know, weakened weakened the law in the long run. And so I wonder, perhaps as a matter of public policy, is when you have the votes, you push through what you think is the absolute best thing, and you don't care what the consequences are, because you're going to pay the price, I think, um, in the midterms anyway. Yeah, I I don't know the answer to that. And I think that's a question that many people struggle with, Mm -hmm. is like, do we want incremental change, or do we want something that's completely revolutionary? And I think in the end, it just comes down to what's feasible at that time. you know. And um, it's a great question. I don't know the answer. I guess... um, Healthcare market is tricky because um, even the best proposal has to be incremental, or you're going to really throw the whole economy in a loop because you have so much of GDP and stuck in healthcare. Yeah. So this kind of is a nice segue to our the next thing I wanted to ask you about. You are somebody who is an academic. You study this as an academic matter, and you've been very good on even this last, you know. Uh, the the brief period of time we've been talking about being careful as to not ascribe causality when you don't know that for sure and to, um, I think, insert appropriate nuance. Um, The other role that many of us in healthcare um, feel is the role of advocate because, you know, as a doctor, uh, especially, you know, I practiced for a little bit in the years before we had Affordable Care Act and saw what it was like to have patients who you didn't have insurance for and it was just just so painful and often very heartbreaking. Um, so as that, wearing that hat, you, you, I'm sure you come to the table thinking like, you know, we just need to solve this problem. And so you, part of you is an advocate. How do you balance those two roles? Um, what advice do you get? Is there a tension there? Uh, can you be both and do it well? Or as I think I saw somebody say recently that if you really are an academic, you should not be an advocate at all. I thought somebody took that extreme view on Twitter. I'm trying to remember who. Yeah, I've seen actually both ways. So the short answer is yes <laughs> to everything. Okay. Um, it, I think it's really um, a personal decision, to be honest. I think um, many of us know that, at least myself, I I've personally think that advocacy is a professionalism issue, like that it is part of our role as a physician. And we go back to like Verkow who said, you know, um, that, you know, medicine is essentially, I'm paraphrasing, is basically practiced out in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and we go to the AMA professional uh, professionalism statements, which say basically something similar, which is that we should be out there being in our public-facing activities, um, advocating for healthcare change for our patients, 
um, etc. Um, and so I think to some extent it is kind of built, advocacy is built into the foundation of medicine as a practice mm-hmm. and that we all have some responsibility to our patients. There, That being said, there are certain people who aren't comfortable with the public-facing aspect of that um, and really, you know, advocating for certain policies or being active in the political sphere. And that is a personal choice that I think is totally fine. Um, for me, um, I think there is definitely a tension between being an academic who studies this stuff and also going out and advocating for um, policies that might align with my work mm-hmm. fairly closely. Um, there is definitely a tension there, but I think if the goal or the mission is around patient care mm-hmm. and it's around building evidence around these policies or using evidence wisely, synthesizing that in the right way to to make good policy, then it absolutely fits in with kind of the academic, um, you know, purpose. And ac- what, what are we doing in academia um, but to affect change ultimately? Like mm-hmm. we don't want to publish papers where nobody reads them and they don't affect, they don't they don't do anything, right? And you might have some thoughts about that. Well, I guess I would say that I hope listeners don't uh, look at all the papers that I've written because some of them have had <laughs> few readers. But no, I think you're, I think I agree with you 100%, which is that, um, yeah, I think that, um, you know, the purpose of the work is, I think, to guide actual decisions made by actual people, not some theoretical, you know, publishing of manuscripts. But I do worry that I think a lot of what we do is kind of read by very few people, and that should not be the goal. That should that should not be considered a metric of success. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that, you know, when it comes to this balance, as you point out, that, you know, one doesn't want to come across as strident or dogmatic, and one should go where the evidence takes one. But I think just an easy thing that we could all be advocates for is, you know, when I see somebody say, I have a policy that does X, and all empirical evidence suggests that it does not do X, I think everybody in academics should call that out and say, I'm sorry, every piece of evidence, you say you're doing this to achieve this goal, that is factually not the case. It will not achieve that goal. It may even achieve the opposite of that goal. So either one of two things are true. One, you simply don't know all this evidence, or you dispute that evidence, in which case I'm happy to hear it. Or two, your real goal is to do the opposite of what you say it is to do. Mm -hmm. And actually, that bothers me the most, because sometimes when you watch policy, especially in this healthcare space, you do worry that the real goal is to do precisely the opposite of what they say, not to perhaps grow jobs or strengthen the marketplace, but to trash the marketplace, have it implode, um, and actually have a situation where people don't have health care. So even though somebody may be using rhetoric saying that everyone should have health care, there are perhaps many people in politics, I think, who do not believe that that to be true, um, despite the Affordable Care Act. They just can no longer say it publicly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is where I think it's it's very important. Yeah. So, but, I mean that, but that like yeah. you know adds to the, the critical nature of where academics come in, mm-hmm. is that they... Are, have a, I think, a, a unique ability to be able to bring data to the discussion, to synthesize that data, and to to draw policymakers where they ought to go in terms of what the evidence tells us. Um, but I think you know there's different types of advocacy. So you're talking a lot about kind of academics advocating for policies, evidence-based policies based on their work. So getting their work out or disseminating mm-hmm. their work to the right audience mm-hmm. um, so that, you know, it can be used in a in an effective Perhaps uh, even via right podcast. Way. Yeah, perhaps. <laughs> um, but there's other ways of conducting yeah. advocacy, right? Yeah. Like we see more and more that um, f- physicians and other clinicians are 
out on the streets protesting, you know, mm. and that that may or may not be something that everybody is comfortable with. There's other advocacy in that, you know, people are writing op-eds mm-hmm. um, and really targeting an audience of um, the public in order to explain different, um, you know, medical clinical guidelines to explain different policies in a way that's easily understood. Mm-hmm. Um, so we see that with like the people who are talking about you know, gun control um, or hey, stay in your lane. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> gun control or vaccines, you uh-huh. know. So those are also ways of kind of getting involved or being civically engaged, uh-huh. professionally engaged in the community setting without necessarily needing to be an academic pushing um, their findings or their data um, or, you know, trying to disseminate that work uh, and not necessarily being the ones marching on the streets. Um, and how do you protesting. feel about that? You're supportive of these efforts? Uh, you know, I think there's no one size fits all. Thing. There's no one size fits all. I think um, the one thing that we do have to be, I think, cautious of, as you had mentioned, is when the evidence, you know, as I mentioned before, a lot of this is based on it ends up being a battle of values in the mm-hmm. end. And I think we do have to be conscious of the fact that when the evidence takes us elsewhere, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. um, even if it goes against our values, that we be open to those types of interpretations. Um, when it goes against what you think would be successful, you'd be interpreted, yeah. Right, and I think that is one of the, I think we all have our biases, but one of the great things about academia is that there is an objective piece of, this is what the data is showing me, this is how it's in, you know we're gonna interpret it, and this is what it can kind of um, change or uh, implicate in the end. And so um, I think following that data with the goal of, Ultimately, we want this work to be used f- to create good policy. Is the north star? Yeah, it's kind of it's 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 so interesting because sometimes I think that like you know the political question is this question of like you know do we want to insure everyone? Do we want to cover people? Do we want to pay for these things? Those are the political question. But then the questions of like how do you implement this best? Right. Um, those are empirical policy questions, right. and they're iterative uh, in the sense that n- there's nobody smart enough especially when you're talking about a marketplace as complicated as you know as you've alluded to nobody no single person can just sketch out on a piece of paper this is the perfect functioning healthcare system this is how private insurance should run this is how the marketplace should work you would need to try it have on it see the unanticipated effects make some changes but with the goal of actually getting this to work well yeah that's a really great point and actually the perfect example i can think of that uh, surrounding that is um you know there's a lot of talk about Medicaid work requirements, and a number of states right. um, have passed waivers around that, and a number of states are pending, have waivers pending around that. Um, and all the evidence to date has shown that it's a stupid policy. They, it's costly, administratively costly. It's costly to patients because yeah. they, you know, are kicked off their plans. It doesn't really make sense based on who the demographics they're targeting. Um, but there's some folks at Penn who are coupling with a state Medicaid agency who is implementing that policy, evaluating it, and trying to see, like, what are the cases in which that could work well? How do we make the goals of the policy actually align with how it's implemented and their outcomes? And I think that is really interesting and useful and good science. So they're trying to make lemonade out of lemons. But the, the problem I always have with that policy is, like, what is the what do the people who support that policy, like, believe the goal is to encourage people to work more uh, well yeah I mean sick, you're getting or? back into like kind of yeah what is the value the that they're, try- yeah, what is the value that they're, they're trying, trying to, to communicate yeah. and you know I think a lot of that is around personal responsibility yeah and we, it's around those people things. don't like seeing people not working and yeah. collecting 
healthcare. Yeah, and actually there's been an interesting theme around work requirements that have come up um, through news articles and talking with people um, in, you know, like Appalachia Mm -hmm. or, you know, other uh, under-resourced communities where there's also um, a theme about the kind of pride, self-pride, the um, dignity of work, things like that are themes that are raised again and again. Um, but again, these are these are values that yeah. people are communicating, not really policies. And the policies often don't align with the values. Yeah, they're self-defeating often. Um, yeah. And they often um, are, you know, they can be either beneficial or harmful, but they don't I think it's a different when you put inject values into this and all these policies become super politicized then you don't you don't end up getting what you want often you, you make very little headway right yeah. exactly the bulk of your research is it on the affordable care act and these kinds of implications uh no it's actually not i'm i'm you know, to be honest, I've done a, little, a work on a, a, a number of subjects. Broadly speaking, I'm interested in healthcare markets, insurance design, um, payment reform, um, and really, you know, what federal regulations can do and what how people respond to them and how that affects vulnerable populations. And so, um, I have a couple of ongoing projects that are around Medicaid, actually. Um, and in the past, I've worked with some other folks. Um, uh, one of my mentors, Rachel Werner, and and Dan Polsky, as mm-hmm. I mentioned before, um, on a number of other subjects around payment reform. Um, and kind of those are some of the general subjects I'm interested in and kind of moving towards as I um, lock down on my, this academic career. <laughs> now, what would you say to, I'm just kind of curious, this is another big picture question, but what would you say to, there's certainly a, uh, vocal minority of people who believe in uh, policies that would promote like a single payer healthcare system. Uh, what do you? What would you say the challenges of that would be in the United States, and especially moving to something like that from where we are today? Are there advantages and are there disadvantages, and how do you weigh them in your mind? Yeah, I mean that's a really great question. I will say that like all the talk about. Medicare for all and single payer, like that's been ongoing for a long time mm-hmm. now. There's just there's just been kind of changes in the way that we're messaging that. But the um, I think the general concept behind all of these um, policy proposals is the concept of universal coverage that everybody um, you know deserves coverage, and um, that's something I personally believe in. But not everybody does in America, and I think that is one of the biggest. I like challenges. how you answering the question. Um, that's one of the biggest challenges. Again, it's a it's a matter of, of values. I don't think the the actual mechanism of how we would get universal coverage is, to be honest, the Should biggest matter. barrier. I or agree. and I don't think it's the the thing that matters the most either. To be honest, I think it's the um, the threshold, the hump of getting over. Is this something that we are willing to go forward with as a country? Uh, how important do we think this is? And a lot of that is a, a values argument. It's a moral argument, um, especially for for me personally. Um, I like how you've answered that question because I think that I think you did it like somebody who studies policy a great deal. Because I think it's it's easy to fall into these like things where you say, "Oh, I want single payer. I want you know this." But you have to think about like, what do you really want? 
Do you really want, do you really know you want single payer? I mean, I think many people haven't thought about the marketplace as much as you've thought about it, for instance, or in, and even other people have thought about it a great deal. And, and then if they're perfectly honest, they may say, look, well, you know, I guess I don't care how you do it. Um, but what I really want is that everyone in this country should have access to affordable health care when they need it with, you know, reasonable co-pays um, that guide best evidence-based care uh, and not, you know, foolish, extravagant, irrational, unproven medicine, perhaps uh, when you need it and not when you won't, don't. Um, but exactly how you actually get that done, who, who you know, I, I mean, even I would profess I'm not that expert on that and I wouldn't know how to do it. Um, and so I think I like how you're separating the value proposition from the how do you actually accomplish it proposition, which I think are two separate questions. And I do think that there are some people who just simply disagree with that value. But I do think that the Affordable Care Act has, a, has no longer allowed them to disagree with it publicly. They cannot actually come out and say, I disagree that people should have access to health care. They have to say, well, I think we should do it in this way, a way that results in the end point they want, which is that it's a fractured system where some people don't have health care and some other people don't pay more tax, mm-hmm. um, which is what they want. Um, but they cannot come out and say that. That's interesting that you say that because we actually did um, uh, we had a, a survey of state legislators that yeah. was published in JGIM last year. And what we wanted to ask these legislators um, was kind of what are their goals for Medicaid reform? Um, and we asked them specifically about their support for, for, for policy proposals um, in Medicaid waivers that have been approved and pending. And um, you may say that, you know, like there's not a debate about whether we should guarantee access to health care for all, but in this sample of state legislators, yeah. and about 900 of them, that was not a point of agreement, um, <laughs> which was interesting. There, um, you know, there are still um, vast differences in what people think government should be responsible for um, and what individuals should be responsible for. Um, And our survey actually showed that the most agreement was, um, in terms of specific policy, the most area of confluence was around reducing drug prices. Mm -hmm. Um, The least area of uh, agreement was around work requirements, drug testing, Medicaid beneficiaries. But as far as philosophy goes, um, you know, people across the aisle, the political spectrum, um, agreed on you know reducing healthcare costs, mm-hmm. making healthcare more affordable, um, but not on the fact that we should guarantee healthcare for all. And this survey was done how recently? This this past year. Wow. Yeah. And these this at the state level. At the state level, and you know, I would say state legislators are an often a, um, overlooked body of mm-hmm. elite actors mm-hmm. um, that have incredible. Um, power, you know, power um, over healthcare policies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, Medicaid being one huge example, obviously being a s- partnership of um, federal and state. Um, but now with Medicaid waivers and an increased interest in allowing states to have more flexibility in how they direct the programs, state legislators are huge. And so this, um, I think, this kind of data around how state legislators are thinking about healthcare policy reflects, to some extent, a larger. Um, debate, a value proposition debate still ongoing in the country. interesting. I tried to, I don't know, put on my see it from the other person's point of view hat and let me put it on. I'm trying to put it on as tight as I can to try to understand the logic of somebody who thinks that, you know, some people just shouldn't have access to health care. And I guess I would say that the absolute most sympathetic I can be to that point of view is for somebody to say, that, you know, I don't know if we as a society should pay for wasteful services that don't accomplish what we think they accomplish, which 
I, th- the truth is, is that it's some significant portion of healthcare's wasteful services. That part, maybe I'm willing to concede to them. Well, okay, should everyone be taxed to pay for wasteful things? I, I don't know. That's okay. But the part that should everyone be taxed to pay for like life-saving services, I just will never be able to see that the, the point of view that no, that shouldn't be the case. I, I yeah. mean, I just think that that's an easy thing. So I think that maybe the most sympathetic I'll ever get to that point of view is that simultaneously while we do this kind of reform to universalize healthcare access, we as a field have to police ourselves and to make sure what we actually use is wise use of resources. And I think some people may be right to say that we do a lousy job of that because we do have, we have a very poor clinical trials agenda and we are, we're not sorting out the answer to that question. And that's kind of what I spend a lot of time thinking about. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I try to think about like, well, why don't we want to police that well? And I get, I think it's because that many people in positions of power make a great deal of money on that wasteful services and so they don't want you to find out what it is. Um, but that's the absolute most sympathy I have for that point of view. But beyond that, I just can't, I just don't understand it because I mean, it contrasts with, I think, almost every set of ethical principles since the dawn of time. It contrasts uh, with that great book by John Rawls, uh, Theory of Justice, and and the idea that you know a just society is one where you have some veil of ignorance. You really don't know if you're going to be born rich or poor or disabled or healthy, and you should have some uh, sympathy and empathy for people who may be born less fortunate than you. So I guess I just don't understand it beyond that. But these state legislators, some of these states, you know, yeah. I look at what they do and I just shake my head. So I'm glad we're tucked here safe in Oregon. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a great way to put it. Um, I do know that you you talked about like a low value care on a prior. Yes, that's my podcast. I love that. Yeah, okay. that's a great great area. And you know the the whole talk about um, this discussion about like understanding why some people think the way they do. I, I think we're in a unique position because we're healthcare providers that we get to see kind of the other side and what happens when you know the the floor falls through yeah. um, for people and so yeah, I think that definitely affects a lot of our and of just our perspectives. To, like, to convey some sense to that to listeners, I'm going to ask you in a second, but I guess I would say, like, it was always, uh, it's so frustrating. I mean, when you, I mean, when you simultaneously have witnessed many excesses in medical care that, um, and, and, and I, I'd be hard pressed to believe that there's a doctor who has not witnessed at least one example where some very costly, invasive, medical practice was deployed with very weak rationale. And we're not even talking about evidence. We're just talking about like that common sense test, like does this make sense? But yet it's happening. So you simultaneously witness that all the time. And then once in a while, especially in the era before ACA, more commonly, you would see somebody who, boy, this is a life-saving transformative therapy that would really make a world of difference, but I cannot get it for this person because of this arbitrary barrier. And that is incredibly frustrating. I think Mm -hmm. there are many of us who went home and you know, yelled about that for a long period of time. What would you say if if I were to ask you what's your most um, kind of aggravating low value care uh, service that's been that you regularly see when you're <laughs> oh giving boy. care? What would that be? Oh, that's a good question. A single one. Well, I guess what I would say <laughs> is um, <laughs> it's hard to know. I guess I would say I put them in two buckets. I would put them in the bucket of things that like. I guess to me, it's hard to think of a single one because I'll tell you why, because we've done all this work on medical reversals. And so we've published one paper before called The Decade of Reversal in the Mayo Clinic Proceedings in 2011, where we found 146 low value practices and we went through them and explained why they're low value. And by low value, I mean that like the best medical evidence suggested that the, there was no benefit to doing that. 
And I, for years afterwards, and still to today for some of them, I see like those services deployed um, and they always anger me. Uh, one of the things I always get in fights with is like this stenting for chronic stable angina uh, or, uh, or, or sometimes even like coronary artery disease and you wonder if they're really symptomatic or not. Uh, so the stenting in these arteries has always been a, a bothersome spot to me. And you know, ever since Courage publication in 2007 and now with Orbita last year, I think that's just, just this hot box issue. Um, and the other issue that always bothers me is some of these practices, they've never been directly refuted, but they've been on the market for decades and there's just no credible evidence one way or the other. And, and part of me wonders like, how can people make billions of dollars off this product and we just have no idea in whom it benefits and who it harms. Like, And the one thing that comes to mind is like the IVC filter. And I'm always puzzled at you know, our practice patterns around the IVC filter and why we just don't force these companies that have put this product on the market through 510K and other sort of derelict regulatory pathways to just do basic studies to answer the question. I guess from a big picture healthcare point of view, what frustrates me the most about all of healthcare is you look at a nation, a very great nation, spending a trillion dollars a year on something that really should be important that we all believe in, which is like living a long and healthy life. And then you start to ask yourself, um, how much of that trillion dollars is spent on things that there is just no credible evidence and estimates put it very high. And then you ask yourself, and how much money do you spend on testing those things? And you talk about an NIH budget like total of like $30 billion of which a fraction is non-conflicted clinical trials. And you just think that that is an irrational way to allocate money. That if I was running a business and I was spending a trillion dollars on some product, I would spend maybe 5% of that to try to figure out how much of that trillion dollars was wise spending. And every company you know, worth their salt would do that. So that's like my larger frustration about low value care. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, bringing bringing that back to kind of, um, I see similar themes with, you know, our discussion previously of the ACA marketplaces. Like there are certain places where the federal government can invest um, resources and make like, you know, enrollment outreach, um, marketing, things like that. they can invest a small, a relatively small amount and have really high value from Oh, right. They'll save that. themselves money. So they advertise for the marketplace. People join the marketplace who are low risk, and then they save themselves far more money than the cost of advertisement, yeah, right? Yeah, but that's not where, you know, the direction of where those resources have gone. And that's what I call a self-inflicted wound. Yeah. It's a self-inflicted wound at a policy level to watch people do things that are like only harm their own interest. It's the most painful thing to watch in yeah. policy. Yeah. And, 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 you know, some of us, um, I think we would like, we just want to live in a world where we don't have self-inflicted wounds. You know, I don't know if we'll solve every problem in the next 20 years, but I just don't want to stab myself in the chest anymore. I can't. Yeah, we need, we, we need some wound care. Yeah, we need some <laughs> basic wound care. Yeah. Um, well. We've been we've had a good discussion, and I could probably keep you here longer. But I wanted to say, I guess, I wanted to say if you have any last thoughts for for the audience. Yeah. Um, well, I was going to put in a plug yeah. for the uh, enrollment deadline, the <laughs> open enrollment for ACA, which ends December fifteenth, which is Saturday, and and. Um, you know, if this uh, if this podcast comes out before then, then oh I would boy. encourage people to enroll. <laughs> it's slated for coming out <laughs> if after. Not, okay, if maybe. not, though, I hope uh, you know we'll we'll see what what happens I'll and and encourage your friends and family to enroll next year. And then let me ask you this: If there are people in Portland or the Portland area who are interested in this topic, uh, could you use some help? 
on working on these issues? Do you yeah. want some people to contact Definitely. you? Definitely. Feel, feel free to if contact me. If you're a student me. and want to do some work on this topic. I think it's yeah. so interesting. Yeah. I would I would love that. Um, and, and the more people who are working on this issue, uh, are these issues, the, the better. And I think we need more um, you know, research. We need more work. We need more um, brains. So, yeah, feel free to contact me. Dr. Zhu, thank you so much for coming on Plenary Session. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a comment. If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session, or you can send an email to plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We like to know what you're thinking. What could be, be better? What topics could we cover? Um, how can we improve? Finally, Plenary Session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley.